If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to stand with me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. So if you're able, stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased thirty, sixty, and a hundred times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. He answered them, the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the other parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like the seed sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like the seed sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. This is God's word. You may be seated. Have you ever thought to yourself, why the mix reception? You made an announcement, and the diverse reaction astounded you. Teachers experience this all the time. They work hard to come up with creative assignments, and when they give that assignment to the class, they're met with these groans like, oh, another one of these assignments? Could this day get any worse? The teacher, quite flustered, cannot fathom how only a few students are eager to work on the project. Another example is that pastors can experience this type of mixed reception as well. 
A new pastor comes to the congregation with an exciting proposal to change the carpet. Although some people enthusiastically receive the proposal, dozens of members are horrified by this idea. One grandmother stands up and says, you know, my late mother voted in to have this carpet put in. How could you do that to her? Or a man stands up and says, my son who is now 50, when he was a baby, rolled on this carpet. How can you do that to him? Sadly, the pastor never saw it coming. He stands back in bewilderment at the mixed reception. Lastly, this happens to small towns as well. The county planning department is attempting to grow this area, so they decide to put in a Starbucks or a Walmart. The announcement on the local news channel causes quite a riot. Few citizens, they're eager to try a new latte, while most are complaining that their town is being commercialized. They say that the next thing they know, skyscrapers will cast a shadow over their small businesses. At some point in our lives, we have all wondered, why the mixed reception? Now Mark is dealing with this very question in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And after that point, Jesus began to preach about the kingdom and do miracles to attest to that very kingdom. What a glorious announcement. If you think about it, the king is here with his kingdom, and he's offering forgiveness of sins to everyone who come to him in repentance and faith. I don't think you could find a better announcement than that. Yet surprisingly, this proclamation of the kingdom has come with mixed reception. We have a small number of people who are doing the will of God show, shown through their obedience, Yet there is a plethora of different people who have unexpectedly rejected him. The Pharisees and the scribes have charged him with a demon and are plotting his execution. Jesus' family, they tried to avert him from his ministry. And the crowds, the crowds don't really care about his message. No, they care about his miracles. After finishing the last verse in Mark 3, a good reader of the Bible must wonder, why is there such a diverse reaction to this glorious message? In Christ Fellowship, some of you might be wondering that very question today. Why are your neighbors not responding to the gospel? Why do your family, they don't care about the Lord or the things of the Lord? Why do your adult children, why do they not receive the gospel? You might be wondering this question. Why is there such a mixed reception to this marvelous message? Well, Christ Fellowship, Mark is going to answer that very question this morning. I have three points coming from the text. The first point, insiders request insight. The second, outsiders reject revelation. And thirdly, divine grace required. Insiders request insight. Outsiders reject revelation and divine grace required. To help us with the context, again, Mark 4 comes right off the heels of extreme opposition from the scribes and Pharisees, casual interest from the crowd, and Jesus' blood family attempting to redirect him, and also a small crowd doing the will of God shown through their obedience. 
In conclusion, some follow Jesus while the majority reject him. Now, Jesus gives this parable in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, to help his followers understand the reason for Israel's increasing rejection. And I'll say that again because this is important. Now, Jesus gives this parable in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, to help his followers understand the reason for Israel's increasing rejection. I read someone say this week that this section is more of an explanation than an exhortation. And I think that's helpful. Jesus explains to his few followers why everyone doesn't respond to this message. Look with me at the setting in verse 1. Again, he began to teach by the sea and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. In Mark's gospel, Jesus finds himself beside the Sea of Galilee for the fourth time. The text says a very large crowd gathered around him. It's evident that the scribes' outlandish accusations about Jesus' ministry did not work. What were they saying? Do y'all remember my past sermon? They were saying that he was possessed by Satan, and they were trying to kill him, but if they couldn't kill him, at least they would cancel him. At least they would get the crowds to disperse from following him. Oh, but that's not the case at all. What does the text say? The text says it wasn't just a large crowd, but the text says it was a very large crowd that was following him. I love this so much. The scribes have utterly failed to cast doubt over the crowds, so much so that Jesus has to erect a floating pulpit just so everyone can see and hear him. Well, if you look at verse 2, Jesus starts to teach in a peculiar way. Mark writes this. He taught them many things in what? In parables. Mark's going to address the question of why Jesus spoke in parables starting in verse 10, and we're going to get there, but first I want to define what a parable is. So a parable means to come alongside something else. That's simply just what the word means, to come alongside something else. I said in my last sermon that parables are like these earthly stories that have heavenly truths embedded in them. I think that is helpful, but in some ways, that definition is a bit too simplistic. These parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, they were brand new revelations that simultaneously captivated people and confounded others. Some people compare them to sermon illustrations, but I'm not sure that's helpful either because sermon illustrations are meant to clarify, but Jesus uses these parables to both clarify and conceal. Jesus was the greatest teacher who could come up with these real-life scenarios that simultaneously stunned some, confounded others, and illuminated the secrets of the kingdom of God to a few. So he'd give these real-time stories but embedded in them are these heavenly truths. So in Jesus' first parable to the crowd, we read about a sower and different types of soils. Now on one level, he gave an agricultural lesson, but on another level, he helped his followers understand key truths about the kingdom of God. Now my question is this, what determines if you're hearing a gardening lesson 
or these mysteries about the kingdom. Well, it all depends on one's ears. To our first point, insiders reject insight. So Jesus' parable in verses 3 through 9 consists of a sower who goes out to sow seeds. In this agrarian society, these Galileans, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying when he was talking about a sower going out to sow these seeds. So what these sowers would do, in my understanding, is that they would sow seeds and then they would plow. So they would sow first, they would make these seeds rain everywhere, and then they would start to break up the ground as they plowed the earth. Jesus speaks about four different types of soils that the farmer scatters seeds on. If you look with me at verse 4, the first soil is the seed that falls on the path or road. You see, roads crisscrossed the landscape which separated the different fields, which makes sense that it these seeds would inevitably fall on the road as the sower was going on the edge of his field and spreading these seeds. If you've ever been to or watched a golf tournament on TV, I know that's probably like 4% of us in here, there are designated, there are designated places for the crowds to stand um, where, um, like behind the ropes. And sometimes players will hit a wayward ball into the crowd that falls on the path where these people have been standing. And it's always a tricky shot for them because the ground has been stomped on for days, causing the grass and the dirt under the ball to be very compact and hard. This is a similar picture to the road. The path was so hard from foot traffic that it was almost impossible for seeds to get into the ground. They couldn't, even if they tried to break it up, it was so hard, which makes sense why the birds would come and devour the exposed seed. Well, the second soil that the seed falls on is the rocky ground in verse 5. If you look with me there, Israel's land was fairly rocky, and many of these rocks kind of were hidden under the soil. You might have a shallow, shallow layer of soil and a bunch of limestone rocks concealed underneath that soil. As you would expect, if you had a little soil and a lot of rocks, the plant would grow up quickly, but it wasn't able to take root. So when the sun came and scorched it, it withered away and died. Well, other seeds in verse 7 fell among the thorns. This soil, like the previous one, had dangers hidden underneath. I imagine every single person in here has planted a garden only to find out and experience one of the worst curses in Genesis 3. What is that? Weeds. Amen. That's exactly right. What do weeds do? Weeds choke out the word, taking all the nutrients and the water. That's exactly what these thorns do. They're hidden underneath. You don't know. You plant the, you plant the um, seed in it, and as the plant comes up, all the thorns choke out the nutrients and water, and the end result is tragic. Well, finally, Jesus speaks about a seed that falls on good soil in verse 8, producing 30, 60, or 100 times. Now, I want to say commentators go back and forth as to whether that these yields are miraculous or just a really, really good year. And I'll just tell you, I don't know. It could be either or. 
If I had to lean one way, I think it's the latter. It's a really, really good year. It's the way that you define either grain or bushel. What's he talking about a hundred times, bushel or grain? I'm not really sure. But when we look at Genesis 26, 12, it says that Isaac sowed seed in that land. And in that year, he reaped a hundred times what was sown. And the text says after that, the Lord had blessed him. So whether it was miraculous or a really good year, when Jesus said this, it would have certainly gotten people's attention. They would have understood that the Lord was with this farmer, that the Lord was producing these marvelous yields. Now, if you look at verse nine, Jesus ends the parable with the words, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Now I want to pause. Think about this with me. Jesus has a large crowd standing on the shore listening to him tell an analogy about a farmer and a grain field. And he ends the whole talk with the words, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. I mean, when you think about landing the plane, that seems like a crash landing. He who has ears to hear, listen, why the abrupt ending? Why the abrupt command? Well, while on the surface, it seems like Jesus was failing in his preaching, in reality, Jesus is explaining to everyone, although the application of the parable might be heard, it's not always understood. You can hear the story unfold, but actually not perceive the significance of it. Jesus is implying in verse 9 that the truth will remain hidden until you open your ears to listen. Again, Jesus is implying in verse 9 that the truth will remain hidden unless you open your ears to listen. Jesus exhorts the crowds to listen. And if you notice in verse 3, he begins with that same command. And again, he ends the parable with it too. Listen. He gives an invitation for everyone to hear. In Christ Fellowship, please hear me. This listening, like doing the will of God, shows that one is on the inside, a true family member of God. Well, I think this break in verses 10 through 12 explain this very truth. Insiders, as we saw in Mark 3, are shown as they do the will of God. I think Jesus is telling us right here they're also shown by their listening, by their hearing, by the way in which they accept the word. Let me try to explain that. It's interesting what comes immediately after this parable. What happens? Where's the setting now? It's not on the water. Where is it? Well, the day is over. They're behind closed doors, and it says those with him and the 12 were asking him about the parables. But if you look through the rest of the chapter, you will see that what? That Jesus gave more parables than the parable of the sower. So he didn't just give the parable of the sower, but in chapter 4, he gives many more parables. And I think verse 36 shows us that the rest of the parables in chapter 4 happened on this very water. And when I think Jesus is doing, or better yet, what Mark is doing, I think he inserts verses 10 through 20 to teach us a very important truth. 
You see, I don't think he gave the parable of the sower, and then right after that is verses 10 through 20. I think Mark inserts it right there, and then after that, all these other parables were given alongside the parable of the sower. If you look at verse 36, I think it gives us that indication. It says, so they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. This seems to indicate that the location hasn't changed. The parables after the parable of the sower were all given on the water. Verses 10 through 20 seem to be Mark's insertion to teach us an important point. Now my question is for us, what is he teaching us? Why does he have this seemingly bizarre interruption? Well, I think the answer is clear. He is showing us that one's listening demonstrates if you're on the inside or the outside. I think he inserts this to show us one's listening demonstrates whether you're on the inside or the outside. Look with me at verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. If you notice in verse 10, the disciples are not the only people present inquiring for more understanding. The text states when Jesus was alone with those around him and the 12. So Mark makes a distinction between those around him and the 12. And my question for us is, who are those around him? Who are those people that are alongside the 12 asking him about the meaning of these parables? I think it's undoubtedly people from the large crowd that sat on the shore to hear Jesus' teaching. Among the large crowd, a few of them heard the dual command to listen, and the evidence of this is their proximity to and their posture before Jesus. Like Jesus' disciples, these select few responded to the parable with interest, while most of the crowd responded with indifference. Some responded with interest, while most responded with indifference. The crowds heard an agricultural lesson, while some select few perceived that there was a deeper meaning behind the parable. And I love this text so much because it's not just the 12. People in the crowd, from the crowd, approached Jesus. And what did he do? He didn't turn them away. He didn't say this is just for the disciples. He didn't give them a cold shoulder. He didn't shut the door. What does he do? Well, the text tells us he explains the very secrets of the word of God. If you look at verse 10, you might be initially confused by the phrase, the secret of the kingdom of God. The Greek word secret is mysterion. So mysterion, it's where we get our English word milk. No, I'm, I'm kidding. That's not right. <laughs> Just making sure you're paying attention. It's actually where we get our English word mystery. Now, when we think of secret or mystery, we might immediately think of something that we have to figure out, like the game of Clue. It was Professor Plum with the lead pipe in the library. Yet, that's not what this word means. In the New Testament, mystery does not mean something to be deciphered or figured out. Again, it doesn't mean something to be deciphered or figured out, but it's something to be revealed. That's massive to understand. Paul uses this same word in Colossians 1.26, talking about the gospel. The secret hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
What was the secret? It was the gospel hidden for ages, but now it has been revealed. So mystery isn't something to figure out. No, it's something that is revealed. And again, I love verse 10 so much because how is the mystery revealed? Well, it's revealed by Jesus. He gives them the secrets. It's been granted to them that they might understand. God, very God, is divulging the mysteries of heaven that has been hidden for ages. And he's revealing this to his disciples and those around him. The secrets are embedded in the parables. And Jesus is willing to help his followers draw them out through these explanations. One author said these secrets are like postcards from heaven. And if you could just picture Jesus who has come from heaven down to earth, he's telling his disciples all about it. He's giving them these secrets. He's unveiling these mysteries. And they're getting to hear this very truth. What a glorious thing. What a great God to reveal to them these secrets. Well, Christ Fellowship, I want to make one observation before we move to our second point. Jesus does not turn away those who genuinely come to him for insight into his word. Jesus does not turn away those who genuinely come to him for insight into his word. The text is abundantly clear. What does the text say? They asked, and what does Jesus do? Jesus answers if you know the book of Mark, the disciples are clearly not painted as A-plus followers. No, Jesus rebukes them all the time for their hard-heartedness. Even in this passage, he does that. We see in verse 13, he says, don't you understand? That's a mild rebuke that Jesus is giving him. But what you're going to see in the book of Mark is over and over and over even in the midst of their hard-heartedness, even in the midst of them not clearly understanding everything, Jesus is going to give them explanation after explanation. Look with me at verse 34 in Mark 4. I love this so much. He said this. Mark comments on Jesus' teaching in parables. He said, He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained what? He explained everything to his disciples. It's evident that Jesus does not turn away those who genuinely come to him for insight into his word. And Christ Fellowship, I want to say that is true for us this morning. How many people struggle to understand God's word? I think every single person would say yes. How many of us feel the temptation not to come to God's word? when we see our dirtiness and our sin, I think every single person would say, yes, I feel that. But please hear me. This passage is teaching us to come to him. He will teach you. He will explain his word. But we have to be faithful to come to him. I'm so thankful for people in this congregation, I can think of dozens off the top of my head, that give evidence to this very fact. I've seen you grow so much in the last year. Why did that happen? Did the truth just fall into your lap? No. You came to Jesus and he granted you understanding. Praise be to God for that. I pray that we would all continue not to turn away from him, 
but to keep going to him with our struggles and questions and uncertainties. Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to say we desperately desire for you to come to Jesus too. If you come to him in repentance and faith, he will not turn away from you. He died so that he might rescue those that have sinned against him. He was raised on the third day, so all those that look to him will be saved. And so we would encourage you, think about the gospel, think about Jesus, and come to him. He won't turn you away. Well, the parables, they act as dividing lines. Those on the inside respond with curiosity, asking for further insight, and those on the outside show no interest in Jesus' teaching as they walk away unaffected. To our second point, outsiders reject revelation. What we've seen that those who what we've seen is that those who ask for an explanation receive it. But Jesus turns in this section to describe the ones who turn away from him. Look with me at verse 11b through 12. But to those outside, everything comes in parables. So they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. I want to say this is a very difficult set of verses. Jesus helps us understand one of the chief purposes behind the parables. He switches from those who are inside who receive insight to those who are outside who reject revelation. And he explicitly uses the term outside, again, distinguishing between those who come to him for understanding and those that have rejected him, those that have drifted from him, those that do not want to hear a deeper meaning. I said earlier that parables are not like sermon illustrations, and I want to say again, they can't be. Sermon illustrations are only meant to clarify, but what Jesus seems to be saying right here is that they're not only meant to clarify, but they're also meant to conceal, not just reveal, but conceal. You might be thinking to yourself now, is Jesus really saying that he speaks in parables to ensure that people will not hear? Is Jesus really saying that he uses these parables to open some people's hearts to softening towards the gospel, but also uses it to harden others? I think that's what he's saying here. And I think using the reference in Isaiah 6 helps us understand this truth. So if you, if you can, turn with me to Isaiah 6. I know Jaron read it, but I want us to look at that verse. I want us to lay our eyes on that verse one more time. So go with me to Isaiah 6. I think pastors love to preach about Isaiah's commissioning service. I mean, it's very inspiring, right? Isaiah's restored, and the Lord says, who shall I send? And what does Isaiah say? He says, send me, Lord. We love to hear that, which is a great thing, but we don't often talk about what comes next. What's going to actually happen when Isaiah goes? Well, this is what we read starting in verse 9. Go say to the people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes 
and hear with their ears. Understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then Isaiah says, until when, Lord? And God replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Isaiah is charged to preach to a people who will mostly not hear or respond. A remnant will be restored, as the text says, but for most, they will be hardened in their sins. The Lord will actually use Isaiah's message to harden the hearts of those who are drifting away from God. Isaiah's message in God's divine providence will harden most and restore some. And what the Lord is saying here is that he designed this before Isaiah ever even uttered a word. Now when Jesus quotes Isaiah, he's explaining that his ministry was designed to produce the same results. Some will hear and be restored, yet others will be further hardened in their sins. You can turn back to Mark 4, but as you turn back there, I want to show you further proof in the Bible. If you look at John 12, verses 37 through 40, John explains why Israel did not believe in him. And he says in verse 38, this is why they were unable to believe. Do you hear what John says? This is why they were unable to believe. And what does he do after that? Well, he quotes the same exact passage in Isaiah 6. Paul uses the same Old Testament reference in the very last chapter of Acts, speaking about Jews in Rome who did not believe his message. I want to pause for a second to say that we are absolutely walking on difficult ground here. Although we might not completely understand how to comprehend God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we must confess that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. That's how God has designed the gospel message. In an article I read this week, I love how Greg Lanier commented about this difficult section. He writes this, Indeed, it's precisely through this mystery of hardening and softening that the kingdom of God advances. This is seen most clearly in the way the hardness of those who rejected Jesus prepared the way for the cross, which in turn opens up the kingdom of God for those to receive. Brothers and sisters, I want us to marvel at God's sovereignty in salvation. This hardening was the very means by which Israel cried, crucify, crucify, crucify. Yet this hardening was the very means by which Peter could look at them in Acts 2 and said, you crucified the Lord, but repent and believe and receive full forgiveness of sins. Christ Fellowship, although this theology might be hard to grasp, I pray that we walk away marveling at God's sovereignty in salvation. For who can resist his will? Paul will tell us in Romans, no one can. God will accomplish his purposes. And brother and sister, we are recipients of that very purpose. God used his gospel in his sovereignty to soften our hearts to receive it. It wasn't our brilliance that came to him. It wasn't our intellect. It wasn't our insight. No, by God's sovereignty, he used the gospel that hardened some to soften our hearts. Why did he do it? 
Well, 1 Thessalonians 1 says, because he loves us. I pray that we marvel at God's sovereignty in salvation. Although we might not completely are able to understand it, brothers and sisters, we are recipients of it. God has found mercy on us. And let's worship him because of that. Well, as we've seen in verses 10 through 12, insiders request insight, yet outsiders reject his message. Now the question still stands, why can some people respond to his message while others don't? Jesus will go on to answer this very question through his explanation of the parable of the sower in verses 14 through 20. Look with me there. But before Jesus gives the explanation of the parable, he slightly rebukes his followers for not understanding the meaning. He says in verse 13, don't you understand this parable? Rhetorical question, no, you obviously don't. Why? Because you're coming to me asking for more information. And then he goes, how then will you understand all the other parables? Well, what does this mean? Well, I think it could mean either two things. He's either saying, if you don't have ears to hear this parable, well, then how will you have ears to hear other parables? Now, that might be true, but that didn't make as much sense to me because they obviously had some ears to hear, which is why they came to Jesus asking for further insight. They knew that there were truths embedded in the parable. They had ears to hear. So I don't think that he's saying that. I think the fundamental truths of the gospel and salvation lie in the parable's depths. They are key tenets of the faith that speak about entrance into the kingdom of God. And if the disciples couldn't grasp these elementary principles of the faith, how in the world could the Lord build on such a shaky foundation? Well, to our final point, divine grace required. Last spring my family, we were in our backyard, and we have these stone steps that come from our back gate all the way to our porch that leads up to our back door, and we were taking those stones up, and Kelsey and I would pick them up, and they'd be like 40 to 50 pounds. They were incredibly heavy, so we'd be toting them and putting them in a pile, and then Henry kind of looks outside and was like, oh, I want to help, and so he comes, and he goes, Dada, let me help. And before I could say anything, that little boy just tries to pick up the stone. And so he bends down and immediately I saw his little muscles tighten. I also saw his eyes get about that big. And there was no way in the world that he was going to move that stone. It was beyond Henry's natural capability to move it. He could have tried to move it day and night for three weeks. And that stone would not have budged. He had an inability to move it. In Christ Fellowship, as we'll see in Jesus' explanation, the first three soils clearly show that man has an inability to respond to God's revelation. It's beyond our natural capability to receive God's word on our own. We literally can't do it, and that's the point of the entire parable. Jesus must open up our eyes and ears for us to receive his word. Divine grace is required. That's why this parable is better titled parable of the soils rather than parable of the sower. The word does not change. If you look at verses 14 through 20, every single person hears the word. It's not a deficiency of the word. It's a deficiency of ears. A special hearing is required. 
God must create and till up good soil to produce good fruit. Divine grace is required for gospel growth. I want to finish our time looking at each soil, and I'll give a couple observations to conclude. Jesus explains in verse 15 that the first soil on the path or the road is like people who hear the word and immediately Satan comes and snatches it away. These are people that are hardened in their heart. They could not care about sin. They could not care about heaven or hell. They could not care about righteousness or holiness. No, they're hardened. They're so hard that the seed can't even come in. And so immediately when the word is sown, the devil comes and snatches it away. The word is like water off a duck's back. It has no effect on their situation. When verse 16, Jesus describes the rocky soil as people who receive the word with joy, yet they have no root. So when difficulty comes their way, they fall. They receive it with joy initially, But again, when difficulty comes, they fall away. I remember sitting in my car thinking about this very verse after a conversation that I had early on in my Christian walk. I was sharing the gospel with this guy, and it was like every morning we would hang out and we would just work our way through Philippians. I felt like it was going really well. It seems like the Lord was drawing him to himself. It seemed like he was starting to grasp the gospel. And then one day something happened to him that really jolted his life, made him think about heaven and hell, made him think about sin and righteousness. So he called me, we got together, and I told him, you need to cry out to the Lord. You need to repent and believe. You need to be saved. And that's exactly what he did in tears. He cried out to the Lord. And two weeks after that, things seemed to be going well. Same thing, we were in God's word, we were hanging out, we were talking, until after two weeks, difficulty came to his front door. It came to his front door in such a way that it was pulling him away from the Lord and the things of the Lord. And I remember sitting in the car, I'll never forget this, and I was having a difficult conversation with him, just talking to him about counting the calls, talking to him about what it means to follow the Lord. And he looked at me and said, Bryce, he said, I didn't sign up for this. And that was that. And as he walked away, it's like the Lord immediately brought this verse to my mind. There are superficial professors. There are those that say, I want to be with Jesus, but it's actually not real. And as time goes on, those prove to be false professions. And I want to tell you quickly, this is why we do not do spontaneous baptisms. You will never, ever see we have a call at the end. People, please come down, anybody, and get baptized. We don't do that partly because this very verse. Because there are people that can say, I'm with Jesus, and show a lot of joy. But in reality, they are not with Jesus. There's not a real root. And we would hate to baptize somebody who just made a profession And give them false assurance. Say that, oh, they're with Jesus. But again, they are not. When verses 18 through 19, Jesus tells us of a third soil among the thorns. It's like a people who hear the word, but the desires for other things enter their hearts and choke out the word. 
I was reading Tom, Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon preached in 1819. It might have been a teaching um, titled The Expulsive Power of the New Affection. And Chalmers argues in this sermon that humans do not have the natural capacity to stop loving the world. We have to have something that replaces our desires so that our hearts can take affection in that and then we'll be able to see the world as it is. And Jesus saying in verses 18 through 19 that unless Christ comes to show someone that the world and all its fleeting pleasures are worthless in comparison to Christ, that person will be like the soil or the, the seed sown among these thorns. Eventually, they will be left in a worse place than they were before, vacant and hungry without anybody to satisfy them. Well, finally, in verse 20, you might have noticed that the sower in the fourth soil sows three seeds that all take root. So in the first three soils, we have three seeds, but in the fourth soil, we have three seeds as well. And it's ultimately teaching us that good soil is necessary for gospel fruit. What's the difference in the three soils compared to the last one? Well, that a plant comes up and it produces fruit that it does not die. The secret is the soil. The soil is the means by which gospel growth can take place. Unless the Lord opens up someone's eyes and ears to the gospel, they will have an inability to respond. They will see, but not actually see. They will hear, but not actually hear. Divine grace is required, meaning good soil is necessary for gospel growth. Well, I want to finish with two observations. My first one, Christ Fellowship, people cannot change their topsoil. People cannot change their topsoil. Only God can. I remember, I might have told you all this story, but I remember about 15 minutes after Christ saved me. So it was January 30th, 2013. I went into the bathroom and the first person that I told was my mother. I text her and I actually still have that text message. I took a screenshot of it. Again, Christ just saved me. I didn't really have the words to say what happened, but I told her, I said, mom, I came to find out tonight that I realized that I hadn't fully given my life to the Lord. And I just want to tell you that tonight I did that and I was baptized. My mom later told me that she was driving and she read that message while she was driving, which is not safe, but she did that anyways. She was driving, read the message, and she had to pull over because she was weeping. Why was she weeping? Because she wanted to change my topsoil so bad, and she knew that only the Lord could do it. And as she was reading that text message, she was seeing evidence of that. She had been praying for all these years, and she was seeing that the Lord answered her prayers. Christ Fellowship, I know several parents desperately desire the topsoil of their adult children to be changed. It crushes you every single day to see the word not falling on good soil. Parents, although you cannot change their hearts, listen to me. God is in the business of changing people's soils from bad soil to good soil. He did it in my life and he can do it in your children's life as well. You never know when you're going to get that text message that says, Mom, Dad, 
I actually realized that I wasn't with Jesus, but I just repented and believed in him. That message can come. I pray that you take great hope in that. Well, finally, we're not called to be soil inspectors or seed collectors. We're not called to be soil inspectors or seed collectors. Jesus, in giving this explanation to his disciples, was preparing them for their very ministry. They too would go out into the world, and Jesus is showing them that they can't look at people and see, oh, this person's good soil, I'll preach to them, and this person's bad soil, so I will not give the gospel to them. That doesn't happen. We're like the sower who sows seeds everywhere. We make it rain. We go through the highways and the byways to preach the gospel. We can't be soil inspectors, so we proclaim God's word to everyone, knowing that the Lord saves the worst of the worst. And also, we can't be seed collectors either. Jesus was teaching them these heavenly secrets. Why? Not so they could store them up for themselves, but they could take these postcards and give it to others. I want to show you the kingdom of God. I want to teach you these glorious truths. So we're not called to be soil inspectors or seed collectors. We're called to make the name of Jesus known. Take what we receive and give it to others. Well, as the disciples continue to observe Jesus' ministry, they will experience mixed reaction after mixed reaction. Jesus' followers will surely increase, but opposition will intensify all the more. Nevertheless, these disciples, they don't have to wonder why these things are happening, why the mixed reception to this marvelous message. Jesus has just laid the groundwork right here. It's not a deficiency of the word. It's not a problem with the word going forth. No, it's with the people that the word is landing on. Unless Jesus opens up their eyes and ears, people will not respond. And the disciples, they were learning that very truth at this moment. In Christ Fellowship, I pray that we learn that truth today too. Let's pray.